Chapter 10 of My Airships by Alberto Santos Dumont. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 10 I Go In for Airship Building. In the early spring of 1899, I built another airship which the Paris public at once called the Santos Dumont No. 2. It had the same length and, at first sight, the same form as the No. 1, but its greater diameter brought its volume up to 200 cubic meters, over 7,000 cubic feet, and gave me 20 kilograms, or 44 pounds, more ascensional force. I had taken account of the insufficiency of the air pump that had all but killed me, and I had added a little aluminum ventilator to make sure of permanency in the form of the balloon. This ventilator was a rotary fan, worked by the motor, to send air into the little interior air balloon, which was sewed inside to the bottom of the great balloon, like a kind of closed pocket. In figure 5, G is the great balloon filled with hydrogen gas, A, the interior air balloon, VV, the automatic gas valves, AV, the latter's air valve, and TV, the tube by which the rotary ventilator fed the interior air balloon. The air valve, AV, was an exhaust valve similar to the two gas valves, VV, in the great balloon, with one exception that it was weaker. In this way, when there happened to be too much fluid, i.e. gas or air or both, distending the great balloon, all the air would leave the interior balloon before any of the gas would leave the great balloon. The first trial of my number two was set for the 11th of May, 1899. Unfortunately, the weather, which had been fine in the morning, grew steadily rainy in the afternoon. In those days, I had no balloon house of my own. All the morning, the balloon had been slowly filling with hydrogen gas at the captive balloon station of the Jardin d'Acclamation. As there was no shed for me, the work had to be done in the open, and it was done vexatiously, with a hundred delays, surprises, and excuses. When the rain came on, it wetted the balloon. What was to be done? I must either empty it and lose the hydrogen and all my time and trouble, or go on under the disadvantage of a rain-soaked balloon envelope heavier than it ought to be. I chose to go up in the rain. No sooner had I risen than the weather caused a great contraction of the hydrogen so that the long cylindrical balloon shrunk visibly. Then, before the air pump could remedy the fault, a strong wind gust of the rainstorm doubled it up worse than the number one, 
and tossed it into the neighboring trees. My friends began at me again, saying, This time you have learned your lesson. You must understand that it is impossible to keep the shape of your cylindrical ballon rigid. You must not again risk your life by taking a petroleum motor up beneath it. I said to myself, What has the rigidity of the balloon's form to do with danger from a petroleum motor? Errors do not count. I have learned my lesson, but it is not that lesson. Accordingly, I immediately set to work on a number three, with a shorter and very much thicker balloon, 20 meters, 66 feet long, and 7.5 meters, 25 feet, at its greatest diameter. See figure six. It's much greater gas capacity, 500 cubic meters, or 17,650 cubic feet, would give it, with hydrogen, three times the lifting power of my first, and twice that of my second airship. This permitted me to use common illuminating gas, whose lifting power is about half that of hydrogen. The hydrogen plant of the Jardin d'Acclamation had always served me badly. With illuminating gas, I should be free to start from the establishment of my balloon constructor, or elsewhere, as I desired. It will be seen that I was getting far away from the cylindrical shapes of my first two balloons. In the future, I told myself that I would at least avoid doubling up. The rounder form of this balloon also made it possible to dispense with the interior air balloon and its feeding air pump that had twice refused to work adequately at the critical moment. Should this shorter and thicker balloon need aid to keep its form rigid, I relied on the stiffening effect of a 10-meter 33-foot bamboo pole, see figure 6, fixed lengthwise to the suspension cords above my head and directly beneath the balloon. While not yet a true keel, this pole keel supported the basket and guide rope and brought my shifting weights into much more effectual play. On November the 13th, 1899, I started in the Santos Dumont Number no. 3 from the establishment of Vaugirard on the most successful flight that I had yet made. From Vaugirard, I went directly to the Champ de Mars, which I had chosen for its clear, open space. There I was able to practice aerial navigation to my heart's content, circling, driving ahead in straight courses, forcing the airship diagonally onward and upward, and shooting diagonally downward by propeller force, and thus acquiring mastery of my shifting weights. These, because of the greater distance they were now set apart at the extremities of the pole keel, see figure six, worked with an effectiveness that astonished even myself. This 
proved my greatest triumph, for it was already clear to me that the central truth of dirigible ballooning must be ever to descend without sacrificing gas and to mount without sacrificing ballast. During these first evolutions over the Champ de Mars, I had no particular thought of the Eiffel Tower. At most it seemed a monument worth going around, so I circled around it at a prudent distance again and again. Then, still without any dream of what the future had in store for me, I made a straight course for the Parc de Prince over almost the exact line that, two years later, was to mark the Deutsch Prize route. I steered to the Parc de Prince because it was another fine open space. Once there, however, I was loth to descend, so, making a hook, I navigated to the maneuver grounds of the Bagatelle where I finally landed, in souvenir of my fall of the year previous. It was almost at the exact spot where the kite-flying boys had pulled on my guide rope and saved me from a bad shaking up. At this time, remember, neither the Aero Club nor myself possessed a balloon park or shed from which to start and to which to return. On this trip, I considered that had the air been calm, my speed in relation to the ground would have been as much as 25 kilometers or 15 miles per hour. In other words, I went at that rate through the air, the wind being strong, though not violent. Therefore, even had not sentimental reasons led me to land at Bagatelle, I should have hesitated to return with the wind to the Vaugirard balloon house, itself a small size and difficult of access and surrounded by all the houses of a busy quarter. Landing in Paris, in general, is dangerous for any kind of balloon, amid chimney-pots that threaten to pierce its belly and tiles that are always ready to be knocked down on the heads of passers-by. When in the future airships become as common as automobiles are at present, spacious public and private landing stages will have to be built for them in every part of the capital. Already they have been foretold by Mr. Wells in his strange book, When the Sleeper Wakes. Considerations of this order made it desirable for me to have a plant of my own. I needed a building for the housing of my airship between trips. Heretofore, I had emptied the balloon of all its gas at the end of each trip, as one is bound to do with spherical balloons. Now I saw very different possibilities for dirigibles. The significant thing was the fact that my number three had lost so little gas, or perhaps none at all, at the end of its first long trip that I could well have housed it overnight and gone out again in the next day. I had no longer the slightest doubt of the success of my invention. I foresaw that I was going into airship construction as a sort of life work. I should need my own workshop, my own balloon house, 
hydrogen plant, and connection with the illuminating gas mains. The Aero Club had just acquired some land on the newly opened Coteau de Longchamp at St. Cloud, and I concluded to build on it a great shed, long and high enough to house my airship with its balloon fully inflated, and furnished with all the facilities mentioned. This aerodrome, which I built at my own expense, was 30 meters long, 100 feet, 7 meters, 25 feet wide, and 11 meters, 36 feet high. Even here I had to contend with the conceit and prejudice of artisans which had already given me so much trouble at the Jardin d'Acclamation. It was declared that the sliding doors of my aerodrome could not be made to slide on account of their great size. I had to insist. Follow my directions, I said, and do not concern yourself with their practicability. Although the men had named their own pay, it was a long time before I could get the better of this vainglorious stubbornness of theirs. When finished, the doors worked. Naturally. Three years later, the aerodrome built for me by the Prince of Monaco on my plans had still greater sliding doors. While this first of my balloon houses was under construction, I made a number of other successful trips in the number three. Last time losing my rudder, and luckily landing on the plain at Ivray. I did not repair the number three. Its balloon was too clumsy in form, and its motor was too weak. I had now my own aerodrome and gas plant. I would build a new airship, and with it, I would be able to experiment for longer periods and with more method. End of chapter 10